Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we explore the First Amendment aspects of voting, elections, and campaigns. In particular, how voting and related activities might be considered speech, and how the Supreme Court has come to view the First Amendment's role, or lack thereof, in voting. My guest is Lata Knott, fellow for the First Amendment at the Freedom Forum and Deputy Policy Director for the voting rights organization, State Voices. Welcome. Glad to have you on. How does the First Amendment play a role in U.S. elections? Well, the First Amendment protects a lot of activities that are related to voting in elections. Um, It protects expressing your political views in your polling stations and um, signing petitions to put initiatives on the ballots. It protects like receiving news coverage on various candidates. It affects how uh, candidates are presented on that ballot. Um, It does all of these things that are adjacent to elections, but it stops short of protecting voting itself. Um, Some of my uh, favorite voting rights lawyers, like Armin Durfner, who is a a big proponent of the Voting Rights Act and, and a hero of the civil rights movement, you know, he said once that it just seemed kind of obvious that registering to vote and casting a ballot that those things are, are acts of free speech and should be protected under the First Amendment. But, you know, that's just not how the Supreme Court sees it. It does not view voting regulations in the same way that it views speech regulations. So I've always thought that even if you don't consider voting to be speech, it just seems kind of strange that the two concepts are considered so differently under the law. Right. Why do you think that is? Why do you think voting doesn't get that protection? You know, it's hard to say like one reason why that is, um, except that that's just how the law develops. Um, and there's a lot of like pontificating I could do, like, oh, it reflects like how we're kind of ambivalent about democracy in general and like everybody having the right to vote. Or it could just be that we have this idea that's come up that voting is a privilege and not a right. Um, why that is, uh, again, I think that that's kind of like an anti-democracy sentiment. But um, suffice it to say, that is the way it is, unfortunately. And that's how I feel about it as well. But when you look back at the the history of voting in the U.S., it started out restricted. It started out with just white landowning men. So even though it feels obvious to you and obvious to me that it's a speech issue, that, that wasn't how the founding fathers viewed voting. They really did see voting as this privilege. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how voting was conceived of initially uh, and how it's evolved. You're right. In the founding of our nation, the founders, like, they didn't believe in universal suffrage. They believed in and suffrage for white landowning males, you know. They were generally kind of distrustful of this idea of majority ruling. They were, they actually feared, like, that the democratic majority would be tyrannical and would run run roughshod over all the things they held dear. That's why, like, in you know the original constitution, uh, people don't vote for senators in their state. Their legislature selects the senators. Most of like the the framers of the constitution were like, "Yep, nope, absolutely, that makes sense. We love that." They're very ambivalent about about the idea of democracy. I, I would say that a lot of the things that we think of as like enshrined in the constitution, like I, I'm not really sure if the framers thought of free speech the way that we think of free speech. You know, and I don't think that they thought of the right to bear arms necessarily the way that uh, a lot of people think of the right to bear arms. Their views were a product of of their time and their own biases and things like that. I'd like to think that we view the right to vote today as, as a something where it's just if you're able to pick your representatives, then they can serve your interests. 
if you can't pick them, then they're not going to serve your interests. And it's, it's kind of as simple as that. And I am not sure if that is exactly how the, the founders viewed it, but um, I do think that we've kind of come, come, come away since then where that's how we think of voting. Even like wherever you are in the political spectrum, I think that there's this idea that like, you know what, it's really important to be able to choose the people who represent you. And that's why the the right should be enjoyed by more than just like a handful of people. Right, right. And even with that idea of electing senators and electing representatives, we had to come around to that. That wasn't how it was done initially, right? It was other lawmakers appointed senators and representatives. Mm -hmm. And so so that led to seats being vacant for months, years, because there was such bickering. So actually, we came around to, we'll function better if we do this directly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And yet we haven't come there when it comes to voting in general. So because you brought it up, I would love to touch on the Voting Rights Act of the 1960s and also the current bill that's going through Congress, the, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. I mean, we had a Voting Rights Act. It wasn't a constitutional amendment, but it did sort of operationalize how to protect voting. And then the Supreme Court decided to overturn a portion of that. And now we're back into this space where voter suppression is more common and for all intents and purposes, legal. Legislatures in conservative states are putting all these limitations on voting. And someone like me may have assumed, isn't that violating speech? Isn't that violating our fundamental right? But apparently, no, it's not a violation at all, according to current law. So I'm wondering if you can address what the Voting Rights Act of the 1960s did for voting and, and the act of voting as free speech and where we're at now. Voting was guaranteed by the 14th and 15th Amendments. They guarantee the right to vote, or at least they guarantee that states can't take away the right to vote on the basis of race, color, or previous condition of, of servitude. They can't do that. The Voting Rights Act was passed because while it's great that those two amendments were there in the Constitution, there was no enforcement mechanism for them. You know, it's like, okay, well, I feel that the state didn't necessarily deny me the right to vote outright, but it created a crazy literacy test uh, that only applied to people of a certain color, you know, and it was it was stuff like that where it's just like there's got to be like some mechanism for saying that that come on you're you're violating what those amendments were intended to do. And that mechanism was the Voting Rights Act. Um, and there are two provisions of the Voting Rights Act, uh, as it was like passed in the 1960s, that were like important enforcement provision. The first one is Section 2. And that one says that, hey, if your state or local government is abridging your right to vote, is discriminating against you, then you can sue. So that, that's, that's Section 2. And that still exists today. That is, in fact, the only tooth the Voting Rights Act has left because the other tooth was Section 5. And Section 5 said, hey, if you are a state or a municipality that has a history of passing discriminatory laws around voting, then if you're going to change your laws around voting, whether that's just changing where your polling locations are or like changing the requirements, whatever, that's fine. You can do that. But you need to pre-clear those changes with the Department of Justice. Um, and the whole idea was that this is a federal law that passed, and these are ways that the federal government can make sure that the states are actually respecting voting rights by allowing people to sue in federal court and by having a federal agency, the Department of Justice, like approve of any changes in voting laws, at least where like there's a history of discrimination. 2013, the Supreme Court 
invalidated Section 5. So so now all we have is Section 2. What occurred with regard to effects on speech after 2013? The Brennan Center, um, they recently released a report about how since, since 2013, the racial turnout gap in jurisdictions that were previously covered by the Voting Rights Act, it increased. It increased a lot. So that you are getting far less turnout of, of Black voters as compared to white voters. And these are in, in counties and, and states where there was a history of racially discriminatory laws. So if you look at that, like the lack of that protection, like the, the laws and, and policies and regulations that have gone in place and didn't need to be pre-cleared, that has had an effect. In the last seven years, it's been seven years, eight years, I suppose, like that's the main change that's happened. And then you see that, that effect, that, that decrease in turnout. Now, I would relate this to, to a free speech thing in the sense that my ideal of elections is that um, people participate in them and that more participation means more voices in the conversation, means representation that truly serves everyone. Um, it kind of goes back to this principle that's, I think, like both a voting and a speech principle, one person, one vote. Everyone should get one vote. Everyone should get equal say in our democracy. And when you have this disparity in turnout, it doesn't seem like you are. Um, and in fact, a concept under the First Amendment is content discrimination. That's bad. You can't discriminate against people based on what they've got to say or who they are. Um, you can do things like place restrictions on like the time and place and manner. But like if you craft that restriction, so it's like I've crafted it so carefully that this group of people I hate cannot possibly will will not possibly be able to to meet it. Then that's that's viewed as like, come on, that's content discrimination. And I think when you have laws that that you've crafted in such a way that they exclude, honestly, they I mean they exclude people who you think are going to vote in a certain way. <laughs> they exclude people who you think will not vote for you. I think that I, I would draw that as content discrimination. And I understand the Supreme Court might disagree with me there, but I think that that's an argument that that can be made, that there's a reason why you want some people to vote and other people not to vote, and it's because of the way you think that they're going to vote. Right, and that that on its face appears to be something that's antithetical to what I see or what a lot of people see is what the U.S. is supposed to be about. Um, now, you mentioned earlier that the Supreme Court or that the court, the high courts haven't generally agreed with this. Has that been consistent, or is this just the current Supreme Court? Well, the... Big moment where I, I kind of like felt quite disappointed as a First Amendment advocate and a, and a voting rights advocate. That would have been like in 2019, just a few years ago. There were a couple of cases that the Supreme Court heard um, that were challenges to extreme partisan gerrymandering. You know, uh, one of them was brought by North Carolina plaintiffs, and they were saying that, hey, the state is discriminating against Democrats with its redistricting plan. And the other was brought by Maryland plaintiffs saying, hey, the state is, is discriminating against Republicans with its districting plan. Um, and in both of these cases, the plaintiffs said that their First Amendment rights had been violated because the government was penalizing them for their political views by reducing their ability to elect the candidates of their choice, which I think is, I mean, to me, I'm like, no, that actually makes sense. There is a reason your districts are being drawn that way. It's not just because they hate you. It's because they they think that you'll vote in a certain way. But, you know, the the court dismissed this idea and basically was just like, no. Sorry, not a First Amendment issue. Plaintiffs are still free to like speak and, and dissociate and whatnot, regardless of how their districts are. If you want to do something about it, like, you know, that that's not for the courts to, to really weigh in on. And since then, you know, you've had like uh, people who have been able to successfully challenge um, 
really bad partisan gerrymanders in court, but that's because their state constitutions forbid partisan gerrymandering. It's not a First Amendment thing. It's a state constitution thing when they've won on that. Yeah, so that, I think, it, this was just a, yeah, just a couple of years ago, but it's the Supreme Court closing the door on this idea that that this is a First Amendment issue. I mean, that, that's that's what I felt was uh, was at work there. Do you think that with a different court makeup, this issue could be revisited, or do you really think that this is now precedent and how the court might proceed in the future? I, I'd like to think so. I'd like to think with a good different court makeup, you know, these are people who are appointed for life. Um, and the reason for that is so they're not supposed to be subject to political or, or societal or whatnot pressures. But I think we've seen in some cases, like when public opinion shifts, sometimes the court follows, you know, like I feel like you saw that with gay rights. Once public perception shifts dramatically, like I think you also see other institutions following. And I do think that maybe there needs to be a a shift in the way that we think about voting. It's so tied up right now with like it's a partisan issue. But to me, it's it shouldn't be a partisan issue. It's just, you know, people should be able to vote. (laughs) That's um, that that shouldn't be crazy, you know. Um, So I think that maybe maybe if we stop viewing voting as a privilege as a society, maybe that. I think that would impact like a lot of things. Yeah, I hear that. It's interesting to me because I sit here in California in San Francisco. I'm like, I mean, people don't already think voting's a right, really? But but you're absolutely right that there is this really different sentiment in other parts of the country about the idea of voting as a privilege. Where or is voting explicitly referenced in the Constitution um, at all? The Constitution does not refer to voting as a privilege. It just, the Constitution doesn't like say much about a lot of things, you know, no offense to the constitution, but it's actually, this is a, this is praise. It's pretty brief. Like people don't think of it that way, but have you ever like had one of those pocket constitutions? You can make it so that it can fit in your pocket. It does not expound that much on anything. <laughs> um, so voting, like it appears in the 14th amendment. It says that, Hey, uh, States, if you take away the right to vote, if you deny people the right to vote who are eligible to vote, you're going to lose congressional representation. Okay. The 15th Amendment says, hey, citizens have the right to vote and you can't deny or abridge it on account of race, color or previous condition of servitude. And that's about it. Uh, There's not there's not a ton of mentions of it. There's no mention that it's a privilege that you need to earn through presenting five forms of ID or anything. That's it. And that is also true of free speech. That's true of freedom from unreasonable search and seizure. That's true of right to counsel. You know, all the Constitution says about about speech, all the First Amendment says is that the government can't pass laws that abridge free speech. It doesn't say that we have the right to speak freely. So the constitution is pretty brief on all of these things. It's us like over the years that we've developed these interpretations where we're like, okay, so the first amendment says the Congress can't pass a law that abridges free speech, but you know what? That probably also applies to states passing laws like that. And you know what? I mean, I think that implies that we have the right to speak freely um, and that the government just can't place a bunch of conditions on it and say, oh, that's okay. We're not actually abridging your ability to speak. You know, we we say all of that. For whatever reason, that's not how the right to vote has been interpreted. Um, it's not described any differently in the Constitution, but, you know, we somehow have, have been like, well, of course, you can make voting dependent on, on literacy or, or residing in the community for so many years or lack of a criminal record or all that stuff. Um, and you would never place those conditions on on freedom of speech or on freedom from unreasonable search and seizure, but you do it for voting. And they're not really, 
they're not really described any differently in the Constitution, I would say. You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking with First Amendment expert Latha Knott about the role of speech in voting. You brought up gerrymandering, but the role of money in elections and the role of special interests, because this is, I think, another piece that that we have to talk about that that informs us or misinforms us. And there is actually now a Supreme Court case, Citizens United, that gives money a voice or gives corporations a voice in a way that we didn't uh, and, and I hadn't conceived of until that moment. Would you talk a little bit about sort of the role of money, the role of corporations, the role of special interests, and and maybe how how to or is there a way to balance that with the idea of getting straightforward, nonpartisan information. You mentioned Citizens United a little over 10 years ago, I think that was. The Supreme Court said that money is speech, or like more accurately, it said that you can't place limits on how much money people and corporations can donate to a campaign, because that's placing limits on their political expression. And it's one of those things where you look at that and you're like, it's a legal argument. I've read the legal argument. It's not a bad legal argument. You know, I mean, you you make the analogy that it's like you can't place limits on how much the press can spend in its reporting in, in the same way for a lot of people. A part of their political expression, their activism is going to campaigns. It's one of those things where you read the argument. And you're like, yeah, no, I, I understand. Like I'm going from point A to point B. But the practical result of that is that you, you know, you dramatically expand this already outsized political influence of, of wealthy donors and corporations and, and special interest groups. So I can't say that I'm a huge fan of that. You know, it does run contrary to like the principles of democracy that we've talked about, like the idea of one person, one vote, because money amplifies your vote, right? The, the things that I like to counter to this effect are like other practical reforms that practically change the landscape, like publicly funded elections would help counter the influence of, of extremely wealthy donors and things that empower small donors, like matching smaller dollar donations with like public funds or just laws that like ask for more transparency in election spending. Um, many of these are actually built into like the For the People Act, which passed the House of Representatives and was recently filibustered in the Senate. An offshoot for me of the whole money in politics is the social media angle, because social media is sold to us, and we all kind of thought it would be, oh, it's going to democratize everything. But instead, it is, again, uh, corporate interests with quite deep coffers deciding how information gets to us, what the algorithms are, um, you know, what we see and don't see. And we have some choice and I get to decide who I follow and who I like and, and all of that. But otherwise, the I, I can't control exactly what I get in my feed. So to me, to me, social media has sort of become another offshoot of this moneyed interest or this interest of power um, influencing the electorate. But in a way, maybe a little more insidious because there is an assumption that I get to control my social media space and that it is democratized. I think about this a lot and I'm kind of all over the place on it because, you know, all, all of what you said is true, that you have this, this setup, this like information infrastructure where like you're getting a lot of information, but a lot of like what you see is controlled by algorithms and, and companies and things like that, things that we don't quite understand and there's a question like, how much does that impact like what we know about the world around us and about our behavior and all of that? But I mean, there's a tendency sort of to like look at social media and be like, you know, you were the cause of all of this. Whereas it's like we've always gotten our information from others. And 
how we decide whether that's good information or bad information. I feel like we've always been maybe not I, by we, I mean, human beings, I guess, not the greatest at that. Um, there's always people trying to take advantage of that fact. And I read this, um, I think it was in Harper's. It was like this article about fake news and just basically um, our reaction to like knowing that there was all this fake news circulating around the time, like the 2016 election was to say like, this is the thing that's bringing down democracy. But, you know, that might be more of like a symptom than the cause, you know? Um, so it's hard to say like how much like social media itself like impacts how voters think versus like maybe you're just learning how a lot of people you didn't really come into contact with thing. I totally agree. I want to explicitly talk about the California recall. Now, at the time of this airing, the recall will have just happened. What really caught my my attention was Erwin Chemerinsky's uh, op-ed about the fact that we could make a case that the California recall, as it is structured, is unconstitutional um, because it doesn't allow for a majority to choose the leader of the state. And I was fascinated by that. And I've read some subsequent articles that say, no, no, no. But I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on on the California recall and some of the conversation happening about it? Well, I'm, I'm actually from California, uh, although I live in D.C. now. Um, so I have a lot of thoughts about it. My whole family, um, you know, they, they voted um, early last week, I believe. And, you know, I read uh, Jamarinsky's op-ed and I, I read many of the responses to it. And I understand, like, you know, the, the argument Chemerinsky's making is that you've got these two questions that you're asking. Um, first, do you want to recall Governor Newsom? And second, if you are going to recall him, who do you want to replace him? And, you know, the governor cannot be one of the replacement candidates for himself, and according to the law of recalls, I guess. So the argument that Chemerinsky and, like, others have raised is that, well, you can recall the governor, a simple majority vote, but you've got what, how many candidates are on the? It's like 47 or something like that. Yeah, you've got 47 candidates. So all, all the replacement governor needs is a plurality, even like a little plurality. As long as they get more votes than any other candidate, then they're, you know, they're going to be the governor of California. And a plurality in this case would be less than 3%. Oh, like gosh. you would need 3% with 47 candidates to get a plurality. Right. So, so Chemerinsky yeah. uh, wrote this op-ed saying, you know, that violates a central principle of democracy, one person, one vote that you can have a candidate who is going to be governor of California who had less support than, than the current governor who was elected in the last election by like, I assume a much larger uh, electorate because special elections like notoriously you don't get too many people coming out to vote. I think that there is a lot of screwiness there. Um, and my legal opinion is that the California recall laws are really goofy. <laughs> um, you can quote me on that, they are goofy. That's my legal opinion. Um, now, there was a lawsuit on these grounds and a federal court was like, actually, no, this is not unconstitutional. It definitely violates the principle of one person, one vote. But so does the Electoral College, I've always thought. So, you know, there's a there's a question to like to how far that principle takes us legally. Um, my view, I guess, is not that like it might be unconstitutional. It, it might not be. But anything that leads to that ridiculous an outcome, like it's kind of like the money in politics thing where it's like you can make the argument absolutely a really good rational argument that money is, is speech and shouldn't be abridged. But then it's like the practical outcome is like, that doesn't seem quite right. Um, and that's kind of how I feel about this. Like that doesn't seem like quite right that somebody could get 3% of the vote 
and be governor of California, you know, that what? It's like a letter of the law versus spirit of the law. And it's like, and we hopefully will care about spirit of the law in, in enough to ensure that we, that we hopefully make it right. Maybe change the laws that allow this to happen in California, like every couple of years. Exactly. We shouldn't be allowed to do it just because we're unhappy. I, I feel like there has to be something like this candidate or this, this elected official assaulted someone or this elected official, uh, you know, stole money or something like that. It's, I, I wish there were a, there were some parameters of not just, well, I didn't like you then. I don't like you now. I'm going to bankroll a recall. Right. It just seems like there's been a lot of recall attempts and I, it just, I don't think anybody envisioned it would be that common, right? Right. Exactly. You addressed this a little bit earlier. I just want to make sure we've covered it all. Where exactly the speech issues lie in your estimation when it comes to voting? So I, I did a lot of like, you know, moaning about how like, oh, it's a shame that like the First Amendment doesn't protect voting. But, you know, I do want to mention that there are a lot of things that are sort of, they're not voting itself, but they're adjacent to voting and it does protect those things. Like what we've seen um, in the past few months are lots of state legislatures proposing or passing like these anti-voter laws. And What's interesting is that some of them implicate First Amendment rights, like not just in like that theoretical one person, one vote sense. I mean, they actually do like uh, Georgia's recently passed voting bill. You know, it's being challenged in court by a number of groups. I think there's like eight different lawsuits going on right now. And civil rights and church groups, they've argued in their brief that, hey, this law makes it a crime for volunteers to give water to voters waiting in line. But giving water to voters waiting in line, that's like the type of interactive communication that it's it's about political change and they describe it as the core of political speech, which makes sense when you think about it, where it's like, hey, if you view donating money to a campaign as political expression, giving water to voters, you're not even giving water to like specific voters, you're giving water to all voters waiting in line. You can see that as like, this is your way of saying, like, we support your right to vote. That's like the interactive communication that goes on between um, civic engagement groups and volunteers and voters. And then there's other stuff where, like, the Georgia First Amendment Foundation, they're suing too. And what they're suing under is Georgia laws, like, they have all these limitations on observing and photographing different aspects of elections. Like, they would make some of these things like a criminal act. And that's like, well, now you're, you might be punishing just this routine First Amendment protected news gathering that journalists do or that interested watchdog citizens do. And then like you have this whole set of restrictions in the law um, around distributing absentee ballot applications to voters and things like that. That's what uh, get out the vote volunteers do. They do it to encourage political participation. And I would argue actually that that is that is political speech. That's what they're doing. They're giving you um, an absentee ballot um, sometimes like, you know, you'll get an absentee ballot that has like your name filled out in it already. Like you'll get one in the mail and that, you know, the Georgia law says, no, you can't do that. Absolutely not. You're subject to huge fines if you do that. I, I think that is a burden on political speech and political expression. Um, and the expression is just to encourage people to, to register to vote or to, you know, to vote in an election. Um, and I, I feel like all of these examples, like, I think they make it clear that voting does not happen in a vacuum. Even if you you totally disagree with me and you're like, nope, the First Amendment, it, it doesn't have that much to do with voting rights. Come on, it shouldn't protect voting rights. That's fine. But like, you got to admit that voting is sort of like, it's the culmination of a lot of First Amendment acts. A lot of speech goes into it. A lot of press, petition, association, like all of that stuff surrounds elections. Like if you are a voter, like think about like, 
Did somebody offer to help you register like a volunteer in a civic engagement group? Well, they were expressing their speech rights. You know, if you learned about the candidates, you were learning about that them because of freedom of the press. Um, if there are ballot initiatives for you to vote on, they got there because petitions were being circulated. Even if you consider voting separate, it's still very interconnected to all of these, these acts of expression. Voting is the culmination of all of these acts of speech. And it really is. It's where we can truly exercise our ability to have an influence on our government, to participate in our government. Right. Yeah. Which I will say, uh, you know, we've, we've talked a bit of trash about the the framers of the Constitution today, but I will say that they did have this idea that uh, that's what expression is for. Political expression um, is the highest form of expression. You need to be informed about what's going on around you and why, because that's important for keeping a check on power. And all of the rights of the First Amendment are about keeping that check on power, about being able to like ask for like the government that we want. And so, yeah, I think that that, that through line was pretty clear even back then. Thank you to my guest, Lata Knott, First Amendment Fellow at the Freedom Forum and Deputy Policy Director for the voting rights organization, State Voices. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing news in context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.